Welcome to Lake Mount Worship Center, connecting you to the life-changing presence of Jesus Christ. We hope that you are blessed and inspired by today's message. Now, if you're new here, what we do every year in the first Sunday of the year is we like to make a declaration. We call it Name the Year Sunday. And uh, what we like to do is just actually just take, uh, take some time and pray into and focus our faith for what God would say to us over the year. So we speak by faith over the year ahead. That means that we don't just go through the year, turn back, look at it, and give it a, a, a rating. But we look ahead into a year, and we speak by faith into that year, calling those things that are not yet what they shall be by faith in Jesus' name. And so that's the prophetic opportunity. The Bible says that if you're a follower of Jesus, you can all prophesy. And so we have the ability to speak by faith and prophetically declare uh, what, what we're believing God for. Now, let me just say the prophetic does not originate in the heart of man. It doesn't originate from here's what we want, so we're just declaring it. But real Bible prophecy originates in the heart of God. And uh, it's expressed in his word. So we can believe for whatever God has said. And so when we, when we anchor ourselves to specific promises in God's word and zero in our faith there and say, Lord, we're, we're believing especially for this. It's not limited to this, but this is an area that collectively as a house we're zeroing in and focusing in on. I believe that God meets us there. So when we name the year, we're, we're focusing our faith. We're coming into alignment with God's word in a specific area. Jesus is the Alpha and Omega. And if you know what that means, it means that he's the beginning and the end. And, uh, and if he's the beginning and the end, that means he's everywhere in between as well. And so that means that 2024 is not a mystery to Jesus. He's already, he's already at the end of it. And so he knows how to get us where he wants us to be in the coming year ahead. And he stands victorious. And that's really what prophecy is, is God speaks a word into our lives. God gives us faith for a focus that he, he, he allows us to latch onto that by faith so, you know, God speaks to us from, the, you know, the future that is present to him. And he speaks into what is our now. And he just says, hey, I want you to do this to get where I want you to be. So um, God's leading us as a church. How many know that? God's leading us as a unique flock in a unique setting at a unique time and space. And so uh, he's, he's got a word for us here and now. So we anticipate by faith as we look forward. Proverbs verse, chapter 18, verse 21 says that the power of life and death are in the tongue. So we can, we can speak either life or we can speak death. We can speak, uh, you know, in alignment with what God says, or we can come into alignment with what we feel or with what the enemy might say. We can come into alignment with the headlines, with Google News, with your social media feed, or we can come in line with the word of God. I can tell you what the right answer is. We're coming in line with the word of God. And so we speak life and not death. And so we want to speak life into this year. And uh, we, we know that God's already gone before us into this year. So in 2023, we named it the year of the burning heart. And the themes that God met us as a church family, he met us in the themes of the spirit of revival as we were taking time together in, in the preaching focus. We looked at the spirit of revival. We looked at the spirit of reformation. Uh, we dug into our Worship Is series. We dug into becoming an Antioch church and just all of these things. God working by his word and by his spirit to give to us a burning heart. He's kindled. How many of you say God kindled a fresh flame in my heart in 2023? 
Come on, anybody else? God did something fresh in your heart. And so we want to, again, just come into alignment with what God would say and, and, and just align our faith. And so our theme for 2024 is devoted. Devoted. We find our theme verse in 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9. The books of 1 and 2 Chronicles record the lives and the performance of the kings of Judah and Israel. Some of the kings were righteous. Some of them were wicked. All had to deal with God or be dealt with by God. And in chapter 16, where we find our text, King Asa, the king of Judah, was under attack and without prayer and without consulting the Lord, he struck an alliance with a foreign king to come and help him out. He leaned on his own understanding instead of leaning on the strength of God. And God sent the prophet Hanani to rebuke him and, and to, to speak to him about relying on his own strength and leaning on his own understanding. And in that rebuke and in the midst of that conversation... A revelation of a principle of God's heart is given to us. In the midst of saying, you shouldn't have done that, you, you know, that was a foolish thing. In the midst of it, the reason why is given to us in 2 Chronicles 16, verse 9. It's our theme verse. It says this, For the eyes of the Lord roam throughout the earth to show himself strong for those who are wholeheartedly devoted to him. God said to Asa, you displease me when you lean on your own strength and try to come up with your own way through the difficulty that you're finding because you're underestimating my commitment to you. The eyes of the Lord roam throughout the whole earth to show himself strong for those who are wholeheartedly devoted to him. If you need God to show himself strong on your behalf, become wholeheartedly devoted to him. It's not a fluke. It's not a chance. And it's not just pray, oh God, show yourself strong on my behalf. Become a wholehearted, devoted person to the Lord. Well, then what does it mean to be devoted? I wrestled with the, the, the theme of this year, naming it uh, maybe devotion. But I felt like the Lord was saying, no, it's not so much the devotion or the practice that I'm after. It's the devoted that I want. It's the people that become devoted to me. And in, in theme and in spirit, the word devotion, the, the word that I wrestled with was consecration, the consecrated. But I thought it would, it would take too much time to keep explaining it to everybody that you said it to. But I want to explain it to you. That to be consecrated is to be set apart to the Lord. In Psalm 50 verse 5, God says, Gather to me my consecrated ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. See, to be born again by the washing of the water and of the blood, to be born again is to be a person who belongs to the Lord Jesus. It's the leadership of your life and mine as followers of Jesus. The leadership of our lives is turned over to him. It's devoted to him. I, like Asa, I don't want to just do what I want to do, but now with my whole life, I say, God, what are you saying? 
That's the devoted heart. That's the consecrated heart. I'm not just doing whatever I feel like, but I'm saying in devotion and as a devoted one, Lord, what are you saying to me? Because I belong to you, not to myself. And I'm not just doing whatever I want and asking you to bless it, but I actually want to be someone that you can bless. I want to live a blessable life. And so God says, gather to me my consecrated ones who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. We sang about it. We will make a covenant with you. We lay down our lives and never pick them up again. And then we make a covenant with you. You lay down your life only to pick it up again. He's the only one worthy because he's triumphed over death and hell and sin and the grave. So we lay our lives down. To make a covenant of sacrifice is two-sided. Jesus gave his life for us, so we give our lives to him. Amen. It's not just ask Jesus to forgive me of my sins. It's giving my life to him. Salvation is the byproduct of lordship. That I live for him. I give my life to you because you gave your life for me. To be devoted is to place our lives on the altar. It's to become a living sacrifice. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2 says this. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. So that you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good and pleasing and perfect will. What Romans chapter 12 verse 1 and 2 tells us is this. We have a choice in the level of our devotion. We have a choice in the level of our devotion. The Apostle Paul, probably the most doctrinally, well definitely the most doctrinally rich book in the whole Bible, the book of Romans... He's built this incredible theological treatise and argument. And then by the time he comes to chapter 12, he says, Therefore, I urge you in view of God's mercy to offer yourself. It's not automatic. When you're saved, you're not automatically devoted. It's a choice. The Holy Spirit doesn't do this for you. The Holy Spirit helps us. But the Apostle Paul, either he's using redundant words and we can just claim it all and just, you know, just claim it all. I'm just, Lord, make me devoted. Lord, I claim devotion. Or the Apostle Paul, under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, was telling us that we need to be urged to respond to mercy. Therefore, in view of God's mercy, because God has been so merciful, wave at me if God's been merciful to you. In view of that mercy, the Apostle Paul says, you have a choice. In view, in response to that mercy, I'm urging you to respond by offering your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy or devoted and acceptable to the Lord. Our spiritual act of worship, according to Romans 12, 1 and 2, is that we no longer conform. Everybody say conform. We no longer conform to the pattern of the world. In other words, there is an us and them distinction in terms of the pattern of my life. 
Not better or worse. I'm better than you. You're worse than me. That's not the discussion. That's not the us versus them. The us versus them is we're all sinners, but I'm saved by grace, and I'm living like salvation isn't just a gift, but that it's an inheritance, and I'm going to devote myself to no longer conform to do what everyone else does, but I'm going to be transformed. Everybody say transformed. By the renewing of my mind. I'm going to change how I think. And I'm going to become more devoted than I previously was to the Lord. I'm going to respond to his mercy. And it says that then we will be able to test and approve what God's will is for my life. Do you know, pastorally, that's got to be the number one question. I just need to know what God's will is for my life. How many want to know what God's will is for your life? Well, if you don't, what are you doing? I'll figure it out. No, I mean, how many want to know what God's will is for your life? Well, here's what the Apostle Paul says by the Holy Spirit. You're urged. You have a choice to respond to God's mercy in such a way that I'm going to up my level of devotion to the Lord. And I'm not going to conform to the way everyone else lives life, but I'm going to be transformed by changing how I think. Not just being positive, but becoming more Bible in my thought process. Learning the ways of God, becoming more like Jesus. And as I set myself to that, then God says, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Again, it's not something I can just claim. I just want to know the will of God. I have to actually posture myself to receive the understanding of his will. You can't know his good, pleasing, and perfect will if you're conformed to the pattern of this world person that's screwing around and asking God to bless it and then they're confused about their direction for their life, there's no surprise. You, you can't mix it all together and just pray that God will somehow just add the, the magic. You don't believe in, in Jesus. You believe in magic. I'm not going to live holy. I'm not going to live different. I'm going to live like everyone else, but I'll just ask for God to bless me. You can do it. It just won't work. Amen. It just, it just doesn't work like that. And I've been praying all this week, and I can sense that God's doing it as I'm speaking, that he would kick the spirit of religion out of this room. I'm not talking religion. I'm not, I'm not talking about becoming baptized in lemon juice and just being a holier-than-thou person. True Holy Spirit holiness comes from relationship with him. And if I really view God's mercy correctly, it dictates that my life is lived as a response to it. I urge you, therefore, in view of God's mercy, to live as a sacrifice, a living sacrifice. Put yourself on the altar. Don't just practice some devotion. Become completely devoted. Some Christians practice a devotional life. Others become devoted. Some make a sacrifice of praise. Others become a living sacrifice. One is reasonable in the apostles' mindset. This is your reasonable act of worship. One is reasonable, one's unreasonable. Singing and asking God to bless whatever you're doing is unreasonable. But living a life of devotion, that's reasonable. 
Not just saying, oh God, take the sacrifice of my praise and my Sunday morning, but take the sacrifice of my life. I want to do this and everyone else is doing it, but I'm not conforming to that way. I'm being transformed and I'm moving in the direction of what your word says without apology or repentance to anybody else. I just want to be devoted, set apart, consecrated, holy unto you. And as I live in that place, God says, I'm going to show you my will. Because you've gotten to a posture where you can actually hear me, receive it, and act upon it. Let us be those who don't just offer our songs or our prayers. Let us be those of whom it could be said, my whole life is a prayer. My whole life is a song of praise. My whole life is devoted to him. Listen to what Job chapter 11, verse 13 and 15 says. It says, yet if you devote your heart to him and stretch out your hands to him, if you put away the sin that is in your hand and allow no evil to dwell in your tent, then free of fault, you will lift up your face, you will stand firm and without fear. We're cleansed to become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. But Paul says later in Galatians that we don't use that new place of freedom to then re-engage in sin. But instead what we do is we allow that freedom that we become slaves to Christ, no longer slaves to sin. And if we live and put away sin and disallow evil in our homes, there's a fearless and firm place that we stand upon. And hear me this morning. God draws near to such people. I want us to take a look at a picture of the devoted life. The Nazarite. If you're taking notes, I want you to write that down. N-A-Z-A-R-I-T-E. The Nazarite. In the Old Testament, the Nazarite was a person who lived at a heightened level of devotion to the Lord. They were those who, who lived at a heightened level of devotion. All of Israel, all of God's people were called to a level of devotion. But the Nazarite went steps further in devotion to the Lord. The Nazarite was one whose whole life was devoted to the Lord. There are three famous Nazarites in Scripture. If you're taking notes, you can write them down. You could even study them this week. Three Nazarites that God tells us about in his word. Samuel, Samson, and John the Baptist. Samuel, I don't have time to unpack these deeply. I'll just give you the overview. All three of these Nazarites were actually set apart from birth. Set apart to God from the womb by the result of either a prophetic word or an angelic visitation. There is a correlation between holiness and usefulness to the Lord. If you want to know why is he preaching on this, there is a correlation between holiness and usefulness to the Lord. Samuel was mighty in the word. He was born in response to his mother Hannah's fervent prayer. She was praying that God would give her a son. 
She was overcome with sorrow and grief in her heart that there was a burden that she didn't just want to be a mom. She wanted to give God something. And so she wasn't praying a selfish prayer. She had a sense in her spirit. See, it wasn't something that, again, I don't have time to unpack it, but I'm here. I go. But like, she's got this, she's got this sense in her spirit that if I had a son, I wouldn't even keep him for myself. I'd give him back to the Lord. You know, that's what we do when we dedicate children here as a church. We're saying, all I am is a steward. These kids aren't mine. They're the Lord's. And I'm stewarding them. I'm investing in them. I'm coaching them. I'm setting up guardrails for them. I don't believe that children are, you know, inherently knowledgeable and wise. It's my job to be a gatekeeper. It's my job to watch over them and steward them to the purpose of the Lord. She said, I'm going to give him back to the Lord. And the Lord answered her. And Samuel was born, and she gave him back to the Lord, and he went and lived in the temple, and he became a powerful prophet at a young age. God spoke to him. He's probably seven or eight years old, and God spoke to him, and through him, a corrupt priesthood was overthrown. Can you imagine that? Eli, the priest, comes and says, what did God say to you last night? And Samuel's like, you're fired. That's what God said. You're fired. He had blonde comb over. Maybe. You're fired. He, he, he overthrows a corrupt priesthood. And then listen to me. The kingdom was established through his prophetic word. He anointed Saul to be king. And then when God rejected Saul, he anointed David to be king. And set up the Davidic line wherein God would take on flesh through the line of David. That was through Samuel's life. Samson, another Nazarite, was mighty in power. His devotion to the Lord was such that God's spirit rested on him to make him strong for warfare. Entire armies could not withstand the Israelites, not because the Israelites were strong, but because one man was. What a picture. One man standing in the power of the Holy Spirit, and enemy, entire enemy nations could not conquer God's people. Because one guy stood there and was like, I don't even need a weapon. What's this? A dead donkey? Okay. Wham! And just like took out entire armies. I mean, if we get to watch highlight reels in heaven, I want to watch that one. Some of you are like, that doesn't sound PG. I know, but it would be cool. Another Nazarite, John the Baptist, he was mighty in spirit. He was the voice of one crying in the wilderness, making the way for the Lord. He had such a prophetic awareness of the mission on his life that he declared that he was the way maker for the Messiah. And God gave him a sign. He said, you baptize in the wilderness and I'll show you who the Messiah is. His job was to declare repentance and people came and repented by the thousands and he was baptizing them. And then he was the one who baptized Jesus to fulfill all righteousness. Now hear me, make no mistake. God sets apart people for his own purposes. But don't allow that knowledge to cause you to think that God's selection is completely random or arbitrary. Again, the eyes of the Lord roam throughout the earth to show himself strong to those who are wholeheartedly devoted to him. It's not a coincidence what God did through Samuel and Samson and John the Baptist, it's not that they earned it, but they partnered with it through devotion. 
that in their set-apart lifestyle, God by his spirit said, I'm coming on this one, and through him I'll establish the kingdom. I'm coming on this one, and through him I will rout enemy nations with nothing more than a donkey jawbone in his hand. Through this one, I will come upon him, and he will preach in a wilderness, and he won't book the arena. The crowds will come to him. They'll be baptized, and he'll make a way for God in the flesh. It wasn't coincidence. It was devotion. And God chooses whom he will. But there are people that move to the front of the line because of devotion. That's Bible. That's not opinion. And if we read the Bible with the idea that there's just, we get to read the stories of God's random, just he just put his hand on this person randomly and did something amazing through that person randomly, then we come away with the idea like, I guess I'm not one of those random people. And I guess there isn't anything exceptional for me. If you want to be exceptionally used, live an exceptional life. Be devoted. For the eyes of the Lord roam throughout the earth. Looking for, look what God's doing. He's looking for people who will be devoted wholeheartedly so that he can put his hand on them and use them. There's a lifestyle that attracts the presence of the Lord. It's the devoted life. And when we're fully devoted to the Lord, it's the opportunity to become like these three Nazarites I'm talking to you about. It's the opportunity to become those who are mighty in the word, mighty in power, mighty in the spirit. Take your Bible and go with me to Numbers chapter 6. And I want us to look at, in Numbers chapter 6, it's in the Old Testament, in the book of Numbers, God outlines what are the activities and the behaviors, what is the devoted standard of the Nazarite? We'll just read the first 12 verses. Number 6, verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, If a man or woman wants to make a special vow, a vow of separation to the Lord as a Nazarite, he must abstain from wine and other fermented drink. He must not drink vinegar made from wine or from any other fermented drink. He must not drink grape juice or eat grapes or raisins. As long as he is a Nazarite, he must not eat anything that comes from the grapevine, not even the seeds or the skins. During that entire period of his vow of separation, no razor may be used on his head. He must be holy until the period of his separation to the Lord is over. He must let the hair of his head grow long. Throughout the period of his separation to the Lord, he must not go near a dead body. Even if his own father or mother or brother or sister dies, he must not make himself ceremonially unclean on account of them. Because the symbol of his separation to God is on his head. Throughout the period of his separation, he's consecrated to the Lord. If someone dies suddenly in his presence, thus defiling the hair he has dedicated, he must shave his head on the day of his cleansing, the seventh day. Then on the eighth day, he must bring two doves or two young pigeons to the priest at the entrance to the tent of meeting. The priest is to offer one as a sin offering and the other as a burnt offering to make atonement for him because he sinned by being in the presence of the dead body. That same day, he's to consecrate his head. He must dedicate himself to the Lord for the period of his separation and must bring a year-old lamb that is male as a guilt offering. The previous days do not count because he became defiled during his separation. 
Now, the three Nazarite examples that I gave to you, as I've mentioned, those three Nazarites were set apart from birth, two of them by an angelic visitation, one by prophetic word from the priest. And they were set apart, even their mothers lived by Nazarite devotion while carrying the children on the inside. They, they, did, they followed the requirements. Where did they find the requirements? Numbers chapter 6, what we just read. And they lived with that level of devotion. And so if you're thinking to yourself, well, what is the prerequisite of a Nazarite? Like, as far as I know, my parents weren't visited by an angel when I was born. As far as I know, there wasn't a prophetic word that I'm supposed to be a special person set apart. The question is, what is the prerequisite to become a Nazarite? To become especially devoted. We just read it, verse 2. Let me read it for you again. Speak to the Israelites and say to them, if a man or a woman wants to. If a man or a woman wants to. If a person wants to make a special vow to the Lord, here's what they're to do. The Nazarite, the devoted one, is one who offers God something that he's not asking for. They want to give something to God that God has not required. What can I give to the Lord? That's not a rhetorical question. That's a, that's a you know, it's a Christmas song. What can, I, what can I give him poor as I am? If I was a shepherd, I'd give a lamb. If I was a wise man, I'd do my part. What can I give the Lord? And, and it's just this rhetorical, oh, I want to do more for God, but there's no possible way. God actually provides a way. What can I give to the Lord? God says, I've got a pathway for the devoted. If you want to give me something more than the bare minimum, then I want you to give me your devotion in the following three areas. If you're taking notes, there's three areas that the Nazarite, the devoted one, there's three areas that are governed. Number one, appetites. Number two, appearances. Number three, associations. Your appetites, your appearances, and your associations. Not because God requires it, but because you might want to. And so I want to pe preach to some people in this room that might want to go a little bit further than just the bare minimum. Some people who in 2024 might say, God, I want to take it up a level and not just sit at what is the baseline requirement. I want to go all in. You're not asking for it. I'm offering. You didn't ask for this, but I'm, I'm coming at you with my appetites, my appearances, and my associations. Number one, your appetites, what you consume. The Bible says that they were to abstain from drinking wine or anything fermented. They were to abstain from eating grapes or raisins. Let me ask, is anyone here gluten-free? Not are you gluten-free. Do you not eat gluten-free things? Hopefully all of us are gluten-free. Is anyone here like not eat gluten? Show of hands, anyone? You don't have to be embarrassed. I know you're proud of it. Um, <laughs> It's like being in CrossFit. Um, <laughs> if you've ever had some kind of a dietary restriction, maybe you tried keto. I tried keto. I'm one of the, you know, 1% that I get ketoacidosis. If you want to know what that is, Google it. It's not fun. I can't do keto. Anyways, 
If you've ever tried a particular diet, I'm avoiding this, then you know what this is like. The Nazarite had to check the labels. They had to read the fine print. They had to inconvenience themselves and, and avoid, abstain what others freely enjoyed. Why? Because they signed up for it. Not because God required it. Because they're like, I just want to go another level. I just want to offer God a higher level of devotion. I will inconvenience myself and I'm going to become that guy. When the server comes and says, what kind of dressing are you like? You're like, um, is there vinegar in your dressing? Is it wine vinegar by, by chance? I can't have that. Are there raisins in this? Is there any great products used in the preparation of this meal? Excuse me, but are your tots tatered in-house? The Nazarite. And every time I say Nazarite, I want you to hear the devoted person. Is a devoted person. They, they don't just mindlessly consume what is placed before them. They make sure it meets the standard of holy devotion to the Lord. Why? Because they want to. They're concerned about things that others are not. Not because God requires it, but because they want to. They want to go higher. They adopt an unusual standard. And God meets them with unusual presence. There are things which consume us, or that we consume which can consume us. They were not to drink wine or alcohol. It was a, a sign of devotion to the Lord to remain clear-minded and not under the influence of any other thing. Oxford Dictionary defines addiction as the fact or condition of being addicted to a particular substance, thing, or activity. There are things that we consume that if we're not careful, they can consume us. Alcohol is one of them. You go too far with alcohol and all of a sudden it's got a hold of you. And if you enjoy the, the feeling of just being a little bit over the edge, just getting a little bit loose and then getting a little beyond that, pretty soon you're given to it where that's how you function. Drugs are another, whether it's legal or illegal, is of no concern to the devoted. It doesn't matter. I mean, are we in agreement with the standards of righteousness with our government? I don't agree with my government what marriage is. I don't, I, I don't agree with my, go my government about, oh, well, this is legal now, so you know, now you can chill out this way. There are things that we can consume that consume us. What are those things? There are things that we can go in that go into us that can aim to change us. The things that entertain us. This isn't just food. This isn't just mind-altering substance in terms of substance. But what about activity? The things that occupy our free time. Here's a question: How can you measure devotion? That might be a great question to write down. See if the answer that I give in just a moment aligns with yours. Come up with a better one. How could you measure your devotion? I would suggest it would be what you think about. How much time you spend on something. And how much money you spend on something. That would be a pretty good indicator 
of what you're devoted to. Maybe you have a better list. You can email me. What would measure my devotion? Where I spend my time, where I spend my money, what I think a lot about. If we were to measure our devotion by where we spend our time and attention, do we spend more time and attention and money on social media and entertainments? Activities other than prayer and the word? If we were just like measuring, how much time do I do this? How much time do I do that? And again, this isn't a demand. It's just if anyone wants to. The second thing that the devoted life gets spoken to is their appearance. The devoted Nazarite was not permitted to cut their hair. They have a big beard and long hair, and that's just the ladies. I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Have you... Show of hands, has anyone here ever had a haircut, a hairstyle that you regretted? How many had a mullet? Anybody have a mullet? A skullet? Do you know what a skullet is? It's when you don't have hair on the top, but you keep growing your mullet anyways. You could also call that the Hulkster. That's kind of fits. I had a friend in middle school whose mom would give him a... <laughs> She'd give him and his little brother a perm every September and every March. <laughs> Believe me, that did not go un- unchecked. It was, it was always, we were looking forward to when March break was over to see <laughs> what was happening in the wheat wagon up there. It's not wrong to want to look good and to want to look presentable, but vanity, pride, that's, a, that's another thing altogether. God says to the devoted one, give me that. Give me your concern with appearances. The Nazarite abstained from cutting the hair. People would start to wonder if you forgot where your barber was. Like, do, do you, did you lose your, the address? You start maybe feeling insecure. Then, then it shifts. People start noticing that your long hair is a sign of devotion to, to the Lord. And they start to admire you for your commitment and your spirituality. And what started out as a point of mockery can end up as a point of admiration and pride. God knows that. So he tells devoted ones, set apart your fashion sense to me. What God's really saying is, let me have a say about your image. What you present to the world, let it speak to your devoted life toward him. Don't be ashamed of Jesus. Don't be ashamed of following after him. If you've got to put your Bible in a, another jacket cover so that no one knows you're reading the Bible, like, work on it. Embarrassed to pray over the meal at the restaurant, work on it. Let your appearance be governed by the Lord. Let your very appearance speak to the presence of the Lord on your life. Finally, your associations. This one's intense, admittedly. They were to abstain from participating in funerals or being with someone when they died. Now, we know from the whole arc of Scripture that God is gracious and and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. So there has to be a loving reason for such a decree. That God would say, 
you can't be with someone. And he lists, you can't, not even, like, someone's, before they could even raise their hand, God answers the question. What if it was my mom or my dad or my brother or my sister? God's like, yep, them too. Oh. I, I can't go to funerals? No. Not because you have to, because you want to. You signed up for this. Okay. So what could the loving purpose of this possibly be? Now, first of all, let me just say, I think any Nazarite who really loves the Lord, any devoted one who really loves the Lord, whose mom or dad or brother or sister, husband, wife, whatever, was, was sick and dying, I think, I don't know if it was me, I think it would be like, well, I guess I'll break my vow and start over later, right? Because there was a pathway for that. If someone dies in your presence, you just shave your head and start over. And the, and the prior days, verse 22, it says the prior days, verse 12, it doesn't count. Everything you did up to, it doesn't count. You have to start over. So I, th- I think the pathway there for a conscientious, compassionate person is, okay, if something like that happened, I could just start my vow over again. But what would the reason be that, that a Nazarite couldn't be in the presence of death? I believe, this is just my theology, I believe it has to do with being mindful of the resurrection. What's defiling about death? Nothing other than it's just simply the opposite of life. And the Nazarite represents the presence of God and the power of resurrection life. Let me give you an example. We talked about Samson. Samson was anointed with incredible might and power and strength so that he could take on armies by himself. But the Bible says that when he, through his own neglect and his own rebellion, compromised and sinned with this girlfriend who was trying to take him out, when he fell asleep in her lap, he told her if she shaved his head, he'd become weak. And so she did. She shaved his head and his strength was taken from him. And the Bible says that this powerful warrior became as weak as any other man and the enemy seized upon the opportunity. Judges chapter 16, you don't have to go there. This is where the story is recorded. Judges 16 verse 21 and 22 says, after his head was shaved, then the Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes and took him down to Gaza, binding him with bronze shackles. They set him to grinding in the prison. Verse 22, but the hair on his head began to grow again. His hair began to grow again. What's that mean? God was starting over again in Samson. Though he rebelled, though he failed, though he sinned, when he became aware of it, they shaved his head, but his hair began to grow again. God can start over with you if you failed. God can start over again with you if you've sinned. Hear me. Someone who abuses that mercy is spiritually bald. What do I mean? I mean they lack the growth of covenant. The sign of their devotion is not being demonstrated. They simply want to please themselves and say sorry over and over again. And so they keep doing whatever they want and keep shaving their head. And there's no growth of devotion in their life. We live in a generation where the cheap mercy that's been preached has caused us to believe, even people in this room who believe, if all I do is say sorry, I'm good. And it makes God to be a fool. 
But when Samson repented, it wasn't just, I'm sorry, where's that girlfriend at? I'm sorry, where's those other things that I've been indulging in? Where's it at? And I'll just say sorry again. But instead, he repented and the hair began to grow. What's that? Why does the Bible say that? If you shave your head, it's going to grow. Your hair's going to grow. So why is the Bible telling you that? Because it's trying to make you mindful there's something happening. There's something happening. There's a growth of change. The, the growing of the hair was symbolic of devotion to the Lord. Are you hearing me? That our associations are governed. And this association with death was just to be reminded that even as a Nazarite with long hair goes in and holds his mother and comes out and shaves his head. What's being said is, I'm devoted to the Lord again. And as the hair begins to grow, it's a timeline between that and his grief. But it's also the timeline of the hope of resurrection is growing in me. We will not all stay asleep. But we will live. The Bible says that after Samson's head was shaved and he was put in that mill and the hair began to grow again, the Bible tells us that Samson returned to the Lord with repentance and the Lord returned to Samson with power. Come on, that's a good word. He went to the temple of the Philistines, put his hands on the pillars, and he said, God, one more time. One more time. What a great prayer. Holy Spirit, one more time. Anoint me one more time. Put your hand on me one more time. Do what you will in my life, God, even just one more time. And he pressed with all his might, and the Spirit of God came on him. The sign of the covenant was growing. And as he pressed on those pillars, the building came down. And in his death, he had more victory than in his life. He became a type of Christ. He gave his life on behalf of the people. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 11 to 14, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. How am I supposed to count myself to the Lord? How am I supposed to deal with my temptations, my struggles, my sin, my habits, my past, my failures? In the same way, count yourself dead to that but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Romans 6, verse 12, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master because you're not under the law, you're under grace. Hallelujah. God is calling us to be those who reckon ourselves, who do the accounting of ourselves, that we are not the people of sin. We're alive to God in Christ Jesus. And I'm not offering my body and the members of my body to sin and doing the things that everyone else does. I'm not conforming to the pattern of the world. I'm being transformed by the renewing of my mind. That's the baseline of sanctification, being made more like Jesus. But over this year, I'm prophesying over this house. God 
God is calling those who want to, to go higher in him. Because what God is looking for, he's searching the whole earth, looking for those whose hearts are wholeheartedly devoted to him so he can show himself strong on their behalf. We need God to move in this land. And it's more than prayer. It's the life that becomes a prayer. It's the life where the hair of the glory begins to grow. Are you following what my meaning is? The life of devotion begins to speak of being set apart to the Lord and saying, God, this life is yours. I'm on the altar, not just a bit and not just for weekend visitation. I'm on the altar. I'm devoted and counting myself dead to sin and alive to Christ. Listen, this is not just a vow of self-discipline. It's a lifestyle of total devotion to the Lord. Close your eyes, would you, with me? Just bow your heads. I believe that God is calling us as a church to a higher place to be devoted to the Lord. To count the cost. Jesus said, if anyone was going to come after me, he needs to count the cost. He says, like someone who's going to start a construction project, you should make sure you've got the money in the bank before you dig the hole. Before you set the foundation and you run out halfway up, determine, am I willing to go all the way? Get a vision of finishing well for the Lord and recognize it'll be more than your self-discipline and your self-will, but it will be a marriage of your will and His will through the power of the Holy Spirit that when I consider and reckon myself dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus and when I stop offering my thought life and my hands and my heart to, to the pleasures of wickedness, when I stop conforming to the pattern of the world and I take Jesus at His word and I trust the Holy Spirit to help me, does it mean it's easy? No, it means that what I'm going to do is I'm going to take the devoted path. I'm going to read the fine print. I'm going to read the labels and I'm going to become selective about what goes into me so that what comes out of me pleases the Lord. He's calling us higher. There may be those in this room today that the first call that you need to respond to is to the call of submission to the Lordship of Jesus. I'm convinced there are people who can go to church for years who don't really know the Lord who can sit and say amen, sing along. But the Holy Spirit doesn't bear witness with their heart that you're born again. I can't explain it to you other than to say that. That the fear of death is canceled and the awareness I'm a child of God becomes the conviction of my heart. That I know I belong to Him. There may be those of you here today that you've never yielded your life to the Lordship of Jesus. Or maybe in the past you have... But it's become apparent that over time, like Samson, you got sleepy and you have found a lift off of the presence of the Lord on your life. I want to say that God can start over again. But I want to say to those just that might be living right now in willful sin, what am I talking about? You're, you're in active sexual disobedience to what God says is his holy standard. There's no mysteries there. Read the Bible. 
and you're wanting God to bless it, I'm here to tell you He can't and He won't. There has to become a willingness that I'm not going to reshave my head over and over again. I'm going to let the growth of reverence for God govern my life and become the covering of my thought. Thank you for listening to today's message. If you would like more information on who we are, visit our website at lakebound.ca or download our app for your mobile device.